I'm happy to see all your faces. I didn't originally conceive of this platform as being about Memorial Day, but it's a happy coincidence that it ends up being offered on this weekend. You see, Memorial Day is about honoring the memory of American soldiers who've died in war. And what I offer today has the potential to ultimately put an end to death through war. That's a pretty grandiose claim, I realize. People have wished for an end to war for time immemorial. But most often, it was just a pipe dream, a wish with no practical recipe for how to get there. I think that what I'm offering today offers the germ of that recipe. And so I invite you to hear it in that light. What I'm talking about is not at the level of politics, although it ultimately has implications there. It's the level, at the level of the personal. Because what I think is needed is a cultural shift. Cultural shifts like this take generations to have their full effect. So I'm not promising that I'm gonna end war in the next five years. But the good news is that this is something that you can start working on today. And that while the geopolitical effects might not be felt immediately, the benefits in your personal life could start today. What I'm talking about is a matter of addressing root causes of violence. I believe that violence, in part, results from elements in our culture that are pervasive and unquestioned. And so I'm talking about questioning some of those core assumptions, which, if not violent themselves, are logical precursors to violence. So what is this assumption, or what is an assumption of this sort? Well, consider this premise. In order to maintain order and get things done, we sometimes have to force people to do things they don't want to do. And forcing usually looks like threatening some sort of adverse consequences if people don't do what we want them to do. Those consequences could be extreme in the form of physical violence or incarceration. Could be more subtle in the form of social disapproval or simply triggering negative emotions. Even more subtly, it could simply be a matter of offering extrinsic motivation, maybe a reward rather than inviting people to get in touch with what most deeply matters to them. This premise of forcing is pervasive in our social institutions. Laws codify what society demands that we do or refrain from doing, and governments do their best to force us to obey those laws. Religions tell people what they should and shouldn't do, and while they may not have access to the sort of force that governments use, 
They can apply strong social pressure to adherence and sometimes use threats of divine punishment or other metaphysical ills. In our workplace, it is generally accepted that employers have wide latitude to specify what they want employees to do and can punish any refusals to comply. Children are subject to force all the time. They're forced to go to school, to spend much of the day sitting at a desk, even something as benign as being forced to brush their teeth. The premise of forcing people to do things that they don't necessarily want to do is applied not just in our institutions, but also in our personal lives. Have you ever had someone close to you ask you to do something and got the sense that whether they said it or not, you were going to pay if you said no? Anyone? <laughs> or have you ever decided that some, someone close to you was doing something that was a problem and that you had to do something to change what they were doing even if they didn't like it, but they needed to change? Perhaps you were willing to shame them or convince them they were bad if they didn't do what you thought they should be doing. What other ways do you use to try to get people to do what you want them to do? I know you'll seek cooperation when you know how, but what are you going to do when someone doesn't act in a way that works for you? Now, having called out a premise as pervasive as all this, you might be feeling a little bit nervous right now about whether I'm about to tell you that this is a really bad idea and that you're wrong and bad and should be ashamed of yourself for doing this. Well, I'm not. I have no desire to force you to do anything, and I don't want you to feel anything but wonderful about yourself and about life. I do, however, want to invite into awareness some implications of this way of navigating the world and some options concerning it that you might not have been aware of. I don't know how soon, if ever, we can eliminate forcing from the way the world does business, but I do know that it has some high costs and that there are underappreciated alternatives. So what are these costs that I'm alluding to? Well, the first one is kind of this big geopolitical issue that I'm talking about, the issue of violence. Because once we accept the premise that it makes sense to force people to do things that they don't want to do, it's just a matter of what, how far we're willing to go to follow through on that premise. And some people, for some people, logically, once force is what we're trying to do, it makes sense to use everything that we have at our disposal, including physical and emotional violence. And even if we personally might find it relatively easy to refrain from going to that extreme, by supporting the premise that it's okay to apply force to people, we're opening up 
that argument. We're opening up that model as a logical possibility that's just going to make sense to many people as the way to get things done. But I'd like to move away from this sort of grand philosophical long-term big issue to the more personal. I mean, what's the cost of forcing people to do things on a more personal level? This comes down to both negative consequences and foregone or, uh, and positive benefits that we pass up on when we choose to force things. I maintain that having a strategy of forcing people tends to make relationship unsustainable. How many of you enjoy being told what to do? Anyone? Most often, when someone tries to force us what to do, there's a visceral tensing. We either want to fight or flight. Uh, more, more practically, this looks like we're going to rebel and say, hell no, you want me to do it? I'm not going to do it even if it was something I wanted to do in the first place. <laughs> or if we don't feel free to do that, we might say, yeah, I'll do it, and then just never get around to it. Or we might think that we don't have a choice and we'll do it, but we'll do it with resentment, half-heartedly. How can we possibly do our best while we're doing it? Or we'll say, okay, I'll do that for him, but you know, in return, I can expect this from him. And we'll form un often unspoken expectations about what they need to do to make it okay that we've done this for them. And then more often than not, they won't do it because they haven't actually agreed to do it. And so we'll find ourselves in a position of trying to force them to do what they're obligated to do because we told ourselves they were, because we were gonna do this other thing for them. This puts us into a cycle that some colleagues of my call, call the vortex of submission. We submit often to what a partner wants us to do to try to keep the peace, to make them happy. We come up with expectations, it leads to demands, it leads to resentment, and it goes around and around in a cycle that is arguably responsible for the end of most marriages that end. In general, this pattern of forcing doesn't doesn't enhance the quality of our relationships. So the more we do it in our relationships, the less sustainable our relationships are going to be. So that's a cost. What are the, some of the foregone opportunities that we don't get to take advantage of? Well, have you ever noticed that when you're told you have to do something, you're just not gonna do it as wholeheartedly as when you realize that you want to do it for its own sake. There's a level of enrollment. There's a level of ownership. There's a level of commitment to doing what we're doing that we just don't get to tap into when we're doing things for reasons of external motivation. How many of you here have ever done something for somebody just because you thought it would make their life a little bit nicer and you had no expectation or hope of reward. Virtually everyone has done 
and does this. And I'm betting it felt pretty good. There are people who say that this is one of the deepest human desires to make each other's life more wonderful. I know that there was a uh, bitter civil war in Sri Lanka and at one point they announced a, uh, a sister city program where one village would help another on the opposite side of the war. And some people were so excited about this, they were loading up their trucks with roofing materials and things to go help their sister city before they've even been announced where it was. It's just something we long for. We long to give gifts to one another. And yet, if we're told that we have to do those things, it drains all the joy out of it. So if we live a world where we run things on a basis of forcing each other to do things, we're robbing each other of an opportunity for joy. Unexpected consequence of the way we're doing things. So those are some of the costs of forcing, but you know, what, what's the alternative? You know, if I ask someone to do something and it, it's really important to me, what if they say no? Well, the basic alternative is to look for ways of doing things that work for everybody, that fulfill everyone's desires. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, right, that's easier said than done. And it often is but it's usually easier than our culture has led us to believe. There are a number of things that we can do when we want to try to come up with solutions that work for everybody. And there are kind of two components. There's an intellectual component and there's an emotional component. So let me talk about the intellectual component first. The first step is to believe that it's worthwhile to try to come up with a solution that works for everybody. That means that when someone tells me they don't want to do what I want them to do, rather than immediately trying to persuade them otherwise, I realize that this might be a signal that there's something about what I'm suggesting that doesn't work for them. And maybe I should be curious about what that is. So after I, step one is to believe that it's worthwhile to look for a solution to works, that works for uh, everybody. Step two is to investigate, to try to find out what's going on. What is going on for this other person? And the third step is to go beneath the surface. Because if we stay at the surface, we're likely to get stuck. And that's how we come up with the story that, oh, there's no way to make everybody happy. It's generally because we don't go deep enough. So for example, suppose, um, suppose I had a partner and I came home and I told her one day, hey, honey, I'm going to buy a $60,000 sports car because, hey, that just sounds like a lot of fun to me. And she says, what? No way. You know, we, we can't spend money on that sort of thing. No, we're not going to do it. 
well, we could just stop there and go back and forth and we could have a big knockdown, drag out fight that would probably go nowhere very fun. Or I could ask her, so uh, why not? <laughs> you know, what are you saying yes to when you're saying no to the sports car? And she might tell me, well, you know, kids, college, <laughs> I want our kids to have a, a good life. I want them to have the opportunities that uh, an education could buy them. And I'm really concerned that if we spend the money on a sports car, we won't have money to send our kids to college. Oh, okay. I can kind of get that. That makes sense to me. And right now we're at the college sports car level. <laughs> Seems like a dilemma. Um, but what if she chooses to go deeper. And she asked me, so what would that do for you if you had a sports car? Ah, well, I just have some excitement in my life, some adventure, you know? I, I just don't have the sense of being alive that I used to have. I want a sense of doing things where it matters, that I'm really alert. And I just, I just I want some of that adrenaline and excitement in my life. And she might say, wow, yeah, I can see why you would really want some excitement in your life and some adventure. That sounds good. I, I, I like the way your face comes alive when you talk about that. And I'm wondering if there's some other way that you could have that excitement and adventure in your life. Well, you know, I used to rock climb. That'd be about $100 for a climbing rope and Another $100 for a pair of shoes and a little gear. I could do that. That'd be pretty adventurous and exciting. And the kids could go to college. <laughs> wow. So believe that it's worthwhile and possible. Investigate and go deeper. Can open up unexpected possibilities. But the other, that's the intellectual side. And the intellectual side will get you partway there. But you're not really going to get to where I'm longing to invite you to go until you take on the emotional side. And the emotional side is about opening our hearts. When we don't open our hearts, other people become objects. They're either an instrument to getting what we want or a barrier to getting what we want. They're no longer human beings. What do you think that does to our relationships when we treat people as objects on a routine basis? I don't think it's gonna bring us the quality of connection that we're all longing for. Our culture has a lot of love songs. Some people have suggested that's because there's so little actual love in our culture that it's just something we're yearning for. I think the, the habit of thinking of people as instruments or barriers is part of the problem. So when I contemplate interacting with another person, I want to take a moment to try to open my heart. Can I see this other person as a human being, as someone who, like me, just longs to love and be loved? Can I trust that 
whatever they're doing, however much it may not align with what I would like to see happening in the world, that there is a, an innocence there, a, a longing, an aspiration for something beautiful. It may not be coming out in a way that we understand as beautiful, but there's an aspiration there towards something worthwhile. And do I have a willingness to enter into trusting their humanity and trying to find out at that level of going deeper if there's something beautiful that they're wanting that I can endorse, that I can say yes to? And is there a way I can express my own humanity in a way that they can also see something beautiful that they want to say yes to? When we stay at the level of the intellectual, we can come up with solutions that might involve both of us getting what we want by reframing what we originally thought we wanted. But when we open our hearts, even more transformative things can happen. It might be that you want something and I initially say no to it. Don't see it meeting my needs. But when I really hear what it means to you, the way it is going to feed your spirit, I may be so moved that suddenly what I originally thought doesn't seem important to me anymore. I want you to have what you want. I want to do what I can to help you get it. This, um, I had an experience of this. One of my first experiences was at a retreat where we were uh, trying to decide who got to use a particularly beautiful room. Nice fireplace, cozy couches. And uh, we had a negotiation and where we each explained what it would mean to us to be in this room. And in the end, one group said, we want you to have this room. We, we want you to have this as our gift. And um, we want to have a cozy room too. And someone could help us have that if you'd be willing to like, go early and turn on the heat, because this is the winter time, it was cold, in this other room. But this other room would be fine for us if someone would be willing to do that. And so we got to give them a gift of getting up early to go turn on the heat for them. And they gave us the gift of this room. And it was an exchange of gifts. It wasn't solving a problem logically. It was opening our hearts to each other and finding a way to turn it into an exchange of gifts. So on the one hand, there's this issue of how we come up with solutions that work for multiple people. But often, there's a problem, and that's that we haven't figured out how to come up with solutions that really work for us alone. Have you ever had the experience of telling yourself you should do something and you try to do it, but you just find that you're dragging your heels? It's like some part of you wants to do it and another part is saying no. The same sort of conflicts that happen in the external world happen in our interior world. It's as if we have many parts inside us. People are made up of simplified, you know, elemental pseudo-people inside us, is, is almost the way it seems. Of, often we're in conflict with ourselves. 
And often the way that these parts relate to each other is from a strategy of believing that they have to force each other to do things. So this, this will happen in the case of someone who's trying to eat in a way that's healthy for them. One part will say, darn it, I, I just have to start eating better, you know, nothing but salads this week, and I'm going to kind of grip my teeth, and I know I want that chocolate cake, but I'm not going to let myself do it. Bum, 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 and I force myself to do it, and all week long I'm good, and then the weekend comes around, and I'm at a party, and oh my god, I just ate two gallons of ice cream. <laughs> so in the, in the beginning, the part that wants to take care of my health is forcing the part that wants sensual pleasure through food and comfort through food, forcing it to do things its way. And then another day, I binge because that part that I was forcibly suppressing before says, no, today I'm in charge. I get my way. Shut up. I don't want to hear that voice that says I shouldn't be doing this and it's bad for my health. I want some pleasure. That's the dynamic of force and violence happening internally. I think that much of our world today runs on the basis of addictions. I think capitalism actually thrives on ad creating addiction. <laughs> Shocking, I know. And I, I define addiction pretty broadly. Doing things in the short run that are bad, uh, don't serve our well-being in the long run. And I have my own pseudo-addictive behaviors. I uh, have had times when I've downloaded much more uh, internet television than I care to admit <laughs> and watch shows back to back to back to back to back all night long. And there's part of me that is just furious about this. It's clear that it doesn't serve my well-being over the long run. It takes away from all sorts of other things that matter to me. And so I can make my resolutions or try to shame myself into reason, you know. I, I want to ask myself, you know, the next time I'm tempted to just watch a lot of the television, I'm just going to ask myself, is this really doing you any good? And you know what? Next time I asked myself that, I said, yep, it's not doing me any good, and screw you. There's no way you're stopping me. <laughs> and so I had two parts that were in disagreement. And I started investigating and trying to go deeper into why would this part choose to watch television. And sure, there's a certain pleasure in it, but it's got to be something deeper than that if there's going to be such a fierce determination to do it. And what I realized, and I suspect that this is true of almost all addiction, is that it was an impulse to try to relieve pain, to try to avert anxiety, to distract myself from fear, and I thought about, well, what, what is the deepest pain that I might be feeling, that I might be trying to protect myself from? You know what? It's the 
It's the pain of shame. What is more painful than thinking badly of yourself, thinking that you're not worthy, not worthy of love, not worthy of being in the world, not worthy of connection, community? What could be more painful? And yet, what was my response to this behavior? I was trying to shame myself out of it. What could be less helpful? No wonder the more I chastised myself, the more determined I was to do it. Now that I know that any addictive impulses are the result of shame in large measure, I know that the best cure is going to be to offer love to that part of me that is having difficulty right now. Say, oh, you're having an impulse to do this? Wow, life must be hard right now. I bet you're not thinking very well of yourself. I want you to know that you're worthwhile, that I love you. And I find that this offers me far more freedom to make different choices than shaming myself ever did. So this is the course of inner nonviolence, of learning to relate to oneself in a way that works for all the parts of us, not just the part that we think should be in charge. I'd like to uh, relate this to larger spiritual issues. This has been a little bit of a pragmatic thing in some ways, but this is ultimately a spiritual project. I like a quote by Martin Luther King Jr. who says, power properly understood is nothing but the ability to achieve purpose. One of the great problems of history is that the concepts of love and power have usually been contrasted as opposites, polar opposites, so that love is identified with a resignation of power and power with a denial of love. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. Injustice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. What I mean to argue for today is the unification of power and love. Discovering how to get things done in a way that is both loving and powerful. And what is this route I've been talking about have to do with love? Well, what I'm proposing is that we honor every voice, internal and external. It's one of the premises of ethical culture that we see inherent worth in every person. And I'm inviting us to extend that to seeing inherent worth in every dimension of our being, in every inner voice inside us. I trust that some of those voices that we most revile have the greatest gifts to offer when only we begin to start listening to them. Love is about trusting that it matters, that each of these things matters. 
that there is beauty and something worthy of love everywhere. In each person in this room, in each person in our family, in each person in the larger world, whether they agree with us politically or not. There is something worthy of love. And the loving act is to move into relating to them in a way that honors that belief. Ethical culture is about creating and nourishing wonderful relationships. The basis for doing that is believing that it's worthwhile believing that the other person is worthwhile, and internally believing that the other parts of ourselves that we haven't identified with, that those parts are worthwhile too. And how is this path about power? I suspect that in the larger world and in many of our individual lives, most of our energy is dedicated to a power struggle to pitting ourselves against other elements that don't seem to want what we want. And we go back and forth trying to force each other to do things the way we want. Imagine what would happen is if we were able to get below the surface to a place of understanding where our forces were aligned, not working in opposition, but moving together. Imagine the amount of energy we would have to bring to bear when we're all motivated by being connected to our deepest internal sense of purpose and value. The amount of energy that we would have to bring to bear would be amazing. This is a route to vitality, a route to aliveness, a route to love. Now, what I've been talking about today is just the merest outline of how to follow this path. This is not something that you're going to know everything that you need to know in order to do this on the basis of my short talk today. This is a deep spiritual path, and there's much more to learn. The good news is that it's learnable. There's a lot that's known about how to do this in practice, in a very nuts and bolts sort of way. And it's this path that I've been dedicating my life to sharing with people, and I invite you to join me with it in your own way. But for right now, I'll simply ask you to consider, is there some way that I would like to start with this today? Is there some way that I could be more kind to the people in my life? Is there some way that I could be more kind to what I discover inside myself? Do I have a yearning to be an expression of love in the world? Thank you.